Well, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. And typically, whenever I start a sermon, I usually start with some sort of illustration or something that's going to pique your interest or capture your attention. And to get started today, I want to draw your attention to the sermon title that's in the bulletin. You'll notice what it says. I am a Pharisee when, and then it's followed by an ellipsis. This week at our elders meeting, we had an opportunity to study Mark chapter 7 verses 1 through 13 together. And it was a blessing just to enjoy that time. Uh, rallying around God's word. We talked about what the main point of the passage was as we witnessed Jesus uh, basically rebuking the, the Pharisees for their commitment to their traditions and their elevated traditions that distorted and invalidated the word of God. And our study revealed just how dangerous their commitment to doing that was in the eyes of Jesus because it exalted their self-righteousness rather than the righteousness of of God. And at the beginning of our elder meeting, we literally went around and, and did this as an exercise. We said, I am a Pharisee when, and then we each took an opportunity to, to answer something that just kind of resonated in our hearts. And I just wanted to share uh, what, our, what some of our responses were when we did that. I am a Pharisee when I am critical of how others worship God what songs they choose to sing, or how someone dresses. I am a Pharisee when I am most critical of others. I am a Pharisee when I'm on time to church, but my heart isn't prepared to worship. I am a Pharisee when I am unwilling to forgive, or when I instruct my kids to honor the Lord from his word and don't lead by example. And it was a really good exercise because what it did was it made us process this scripture through the lens of our own heart. It had us introspect. It had us look at within as we looked at it. And I think it's appropriate for everyone to do that this morning. It's something that the Lord would have for all of us. As you look at the title, how would you complete that phrase? I am a Pharisee when... Initially, I think you'll be surprised. It's not as easy as you think, but then once you start to think about it, the answers do surface. They really do. And this is an important exercise because our tendency as Christians when it comes to judging or being critical is to look at others before we look at ourselves. And the Lord Jesus Christ even noted this tendency in Matthew 7, verse 3, when he says, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? As Jesus interacts with the Pharisees, our study will be incomplete and ineffective if you and I don't use God's word as a mirror to look more intently at our own hearts. Not just theirs, but our own. So without further ado, let's read the passage and look and to see how it can challenge us to grow us spiritually and give God greater glory. Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 1, we'll read through verse 13. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. 
For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship him, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to be given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. And you do many things such as that. Well, the proposition is in your notes, and it says you might be a Pharisee if these four defining actions characterize your life, showing your need for Christ and the gospel. Important to note is that the Pharisees clung to a system of legalism and works righteousness. They created and maintained a system that was ever-evolving according to their oral traditions that were established on the law. They believed that their system was a way of salvation and meticulously followed it. And this defines legalism at the core. And so I, I share all this because there, there is an aspect of legalism that needs to be clearly understood as it relates to the Pharisees, one that we wouldn't, as, as preachers of a gospel of grace, wouldn't adhere to because we know that it's not anything that we do. There is no merited favor. There is nothing that we can do to make our legal standing before God any better, right? There are none righteous, no, not one. But even those of us with a heart that is redeemed, born again, it's good for us to look at these defining actions because they can help us to examine our own heart and still that residue of unbelief, that residue and those tendencies of being legalistic. Well, the first action that we're going to focus on is this. I am a Pharisee when I self-righteously judge the actions of others. And right away, we notice that Jesus gets this unwelcomed visit from the behavior police known as the Pharisees. They travel all the way from Jerusalem to come see him. Jesus uh, has not had an encounter with the Pharisees uh, since going all the way back to Mark chapters 2 and 3. And it was there, if you'll recall, that Jesus performed healing on the Sabbath. And he also asserted his authority over the Sabbath, which was their, which was their baby. 
I mean, literally, it, spiritually speaking, it, that was their, their prized possession, the Sabbath. And so he says, the Son of Man is even Lord over the Sabbath in Mark 2.28. And their response after he, he does one more healing in Mark 3.6 was immediately to go out and come up with a plot to destroy him. We don't see the Pharisees mentioned again until this point in Mark. And so we can safely assume that they got their, 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 their plot, they're bringing their strategy now with them. Verse 1 also lets us know that some scribes were with them, and they were there most likely to document and record any additional uh, laws or any things that, that the Pharisees might add. Scribes functioned in many ways. They were, they were legal scribes, functioning a, a lot like lawyers would, experts in the law as well. And as I mentioned before, and as our verse mentions, they traveled all the way from Jerusalem to Gennesaret. And that is about an 85 to 90 mile journey. Okay, no, no small distance to travel during this time, right? 85 to 90 miles as the crow flies, say down in good old North Carolina. And so they, they would have to come a great distance and they're, they're having to come to deal with this troublemaker from their point of view. And upon arrival, they apparently had been watching Jesus and his disciples closely. As verse 2 says, they had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands. That is unwashed. Question for you. What did the disciples just finish doing at the end? Look at the end of Mark 6. What is it that they just finished doing? Jesus just healed dozens upon dozens, maybe hundreds upon hundreds of sick people throughout the region of Gennesaret. And according to the end of Mark 6, we, we don't have uh, any indication what his disciples were doing during this time. But it's safe to assume, because they had gone out on a healing mission, that they could have been involved with healing while the Lord w was healing. But our context lets us know that the Lord was challenging their own hearts of unbelief at that point. So it was more than likely that they were helping bring people, right? They, they, were, they were touching the, the, the sick and bringing them to Jesus so that they could be healed. This would have meant that potentially all of them were ceremonially unclean. And by the way, this has nothing to do with hygiene. And, and it doesn't mean that they didn't wash their hands before they ate. This has everything to do with ceremonial cleansing. That is the focus and what the Old Testament law prescribes about washing. So what did the law prescribe? According to the Old Testament, only priests were required to wash before entering the tabernacle. And this is recorded for us in Exodus 30, 19, chapter 40, verse 13, and Leviticus 22, 1 through 6. Otherwise, the washing of hands, which is the point of contention here in verse 2, was prescribed only if one had touched a bodily discharge, according to Leviticus 15, 11. And all God's people said, ew, okay. Um, but... But there was, yeah, that, that was it. If somebody touched, if there was a discharge, blood, mucus, pus, you know, I know that's gross to talk about, but it was, that is what would make them ceremonially unclean. 
Now, it's, it's safe to say that everyone that's sick, if you have cancer, for example, on the, the inside of your body, you're, you could be very sick and not have those symptoms. So it would be okay, right? It's only if there's a discharge. I wanted to, to feature that, even though my stomach turns a little bit too when, when I talk about it. This means that there was only one verse in the entire Torah that spoke to, to the cleansing that involved all the Jews. And so there were legitimate reasons uh, where someone could be cr- pronounced ceremonially unclean, yet the Pharisees would take this to the extreme. Listen to this insight from James Edwards. As Judaism's encounter with Gentile culture increased in the post-exilic period, the question of ritual cleanliness took on a new significance as a way of maintaining Jewish purity over against Gentile culture. The Pharisees were the most scrupulous sect of Judaism with regards to matters of cleanness. Unclean for Pharisaic rabbis were any form of human excretion, women after childbirth, corpses, carrion, I looked that word up too, I didn't know what it was, carrion, decaying flesh, you know, carrion for me has always been my bag that I took on the airplane, but uh, I'm just kidding, but uh, there's, yeah, I was like, what is that word, carrion, okay, decaying, putrefying flesh, all right, creeping things, idols, certain classes of people such as lepers, Samaritans, and Gentiles. This list implicates both Jesus and the disciples of several earlier violations of ritual uncleanness, since they have been with lepers, according to Mark 140, tax collectors in Mark 2.13, Gentiles in Mark 5.1, a menstruating woman, Mark 5.25, and corpses, Mark 5.35. Ritual washings were a means of cleansing and protecting observant Jews from the above defilements. End quote. So, before we throw the Pharisees under the bus, in fairness, we'll at least recognize that there was one verse in the entire Torah, the entire thing, there was one verse that could potentially mean that somebody was ceremonially unclean. But what was most troubling to Jesus was their heart response that after he performed these miracles, after he healed time and time again, that this was their focus. They didn't look at how he ministered to the sick and to the suffering. And we actually saw a prequel of this back in Mark 5 when Jairus, who was a synagogue official who would have been well-schooled in what the law prescribed as it related to ceremonial washing, comes to Jesus to have his daughter healed And there's a woman with a hemorrhage who touches him, right, on the way. And in that moment, that would have meant what? That Jesus was ceremonially unclean. That right away, he would need to go isolate himself according to the law. And this was all ordained by the Lord so that he could teach a lesson, so that they could see it. He wanted Jairus to see something. And Jairus has a sick daughter, right, who's dying. And then somebody comes up and lets him know that she's already dead. What would Jairus have Jesus do? The Lord all the time is teaching him 
that it's about loving God's people and serving God's people. That's what he would have them see. In that account, Jesus touched and healed two ceremonially unclean people. And now at the end of Mark 6, he's just allowed himself, without limitation, to be touched by every unclean person who came to him for healing. Is that not just a glorious picture of the gospel of grace? The Lord Jesus Christ who would let anyone who would come to him touch him for healing. Come to him in faith. Anyone who has broken God's holy law, if they would just come to him in faith. Yet the Pharisees, even after witnessing all the miraculous healings of the sick and suffering, they could not look past the law. Imagine for a moment a pregnant woman going into labor. Okay, for our church, that isn't, you don't have to imagine a whole lot. Right? Just, just, we've had several births in the last several months and several more that are coming in the next several months. Okay? Her water is just broken and she and her husband rush to the car. The hospital is several miles away. And on their way out the door in, in, in a hurry, the husband, he forgets to grab his wallet and his ID. But they're rushing to get there. And on their way out of their neighborhood, a police officer clocks them traveling 55 mile an hour in the 35 mile an hour residential zone. And so he pulls them over. He approaches the car and he asks for their driver's license and registration. The man does his best to explain the dire circumstances and how quickly they just rushed out the door. But the police officer just looks at him with disdain and can't believe how fast he was traveling in that neighborhood and how he doesn't have his driver's license with him. And the officer says, I'll be right back. After taking several minutes to do a thorough legal background check on the man's records, he comes back to the car and says that his vehicle registration just expired the day before and that they needed to get out of the vehicle. The husband and his pregnant wife, whose labor pains are intensifying, get out and they sit on the curb. And the husband asks the officer if he would just please give them a ride to the hospital, but the officer refuses. He says by law that he has to wait for the tow truck to come to make sure that it properly detains the vehicle and that legally he's not able to give pedestrians a ride back in the back of his squad car even if he wanted to. Oh, and by the way, he wasn't real keen on the back seat of his car potentially being soiled by a laboring woman. The husband and the wife, they stand there in total shock. What would your heart response be? What is it? Is it right? No, it's not right. But this is exactly what the Pharisees did. This is how they pushed the letter to the law. This is how they did it. And the Lord Jesus Christ, he's like the ambulance that shows up speeding to the rescue. And in doing so, he has permission. Now you have to track with this. He has permission to break the law, okay? He has, well, let me just say that. Uh, let me clarify that. 
He has permission not to break the law, but to expand the law for the sake of righteousness. And that's what he's doing when he's giving uh, the people healing. That's what he's doing when he gives the disciples the instruction to go ahead and heal and touch people. He wasn't saying, oh, I know what the law is. Go break it. Remember, he did not come, right, to abolish the law, but he came to do what? To fulfill it. And this is what he's doing. He's fulfilling the righteousness of the law. The law was always intended to bless, protect, and guide God's people. It wasn't intended for spiritual leaders to self-righteously judge the actions of others, like the scribes and the Pharisees are doing even to Jesus and his disciples right here in this moment. In what ways can you be tempted to be the religious police? To judge others with a self-righteous attitude. Maybe it's someone's use of alcohol or tobacco. Maybe it's dancing on one end of the spectrum and combat sports on the other. True story. I had a brother in Christ who came up to me and shared with me that it was sin for anyone to, for a, a Christian to participate in boxing or any mixed martial arts. Because the Bible clearly calls us to love our neighbor. And by participating, you're intentionally striking your neighbor. And anyone who is a fan of that support is showing support for that activity. I had to remind them that I had my ABF license in high school, Amateur Boxing Federation license in high school. I boxed. I did. And so I said, brother, I love you. And I whap, I gave him a good one and I walked away. That's the end of it. No, that's not what happened. That's not what happened. I went on just to interact with them a little bit more and ask him some more questions. And I said, well, you know, what about um, hockey? You know, there's fighting in that sport too. And he said that from his perspective, it was okay because it was only for a short period and they wore much more protective equipment. Do, do you see the subjective nature of what he's doing? Taking a principle from the scripture, love your neighbor, don't strike your neighbor, and how he's superimposing that. Rather than have it govern his conscience and guide him as it relates to his personal convictions, and nobody forces him to watch boxing, nobody forces him to watch hockey or combat sports, right? And not only did he didn't stop there, but he, he brought that to bear, his view on everyone. And I shared with him that I, I didn't agree with it. I didn't agree with it. Yet I'm sure there are other areas that would unleash a critical or judgmental spirit in my flesh. How might the example of the Pharisees serve as a warning to you and I for being judgmental or critical of others? In what areas is your heart vulnerable to judging the actions of others? Is it how somebody walks? Is it how somebody talks? Is it how somebody dresses? 
Is it how much makeup they're wearing? Is it because they have tattoos? There are plenty of external factors that can cause even a converted heart to sin by judging that needs to be repented of. And we're going to see some more examples in our second defining action as well as additional guidance for our hearts. First, I am a Pharisee when I self-righteously judge the actions of others. Second, I am a Pharisee when I self-righteously exalt my own traditions and standards. In verses 3 through 5, Mark records a very brief parenthetical of tradition that the Pharisees derive from the law for cleansing and washing. How many passages in the Torah addressed washing? Remember? How many? There, there were three for the priests before they went into the temple, and then one in all of the Torah in Leviticus 15:11 for the people. Yet listen to verses 3 through 5, and I'll add some commentary as we read it. For the Pharisees and all the Jews. And notice these things were added for everyone. Not just priests going into the temple, but now for all the Jews. Do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe. Where do they receive those things from? From, from God's word? From, from the law? Many other things? There's one verse. This was a microfraction of the additional restrictions that were, were placed upon them from the Mishnah. And the Mishnah was the written compilation, uh, 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 the, oral, uh, the written oral compilation. That doesn't make sense. Written oral compilation. No, so they had oral tradition that was passed on so the Mishnah was actually a written record of that oral tradition. How's that? Track them with me? Apologize. And so of the thousands upon thousands of entries in the Mishnah, 25% of them are devoted to cleansing, which is absolutely staggering considering the biblical proof text. It's just staggering. Verse 5. So... The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat their bread with impure hands? And if you're wondering at this point what Jesus is feeling in his, in his heart as it relates to the righteous indignation, I would probably say it's very comparable to that couple that was in labor that got pulled over by the police officer and their anger that they had, although the Lord would have been without sin, perfectly righteous in his indignation. Now, before we continue, it's important, significant to understand the basis of the oral tradition of the Talmud and the Mishnah and how it began. James Edwards comments, The contention between Jesus and the Pharisees over clean and unclean was only symptomatic of a deeper division, the crux of which concerned quote, the tradition of the elders, end quote. And I want you to notice, just as you look at this passage, how deeply tradition is woven into the fabric of these 13 verses. Verse 3 says, observing the traditions of the elders. Verse 5, 
according to the tradition of the elders. Verse 8, you hold to the tradition of men. Verse 9, in order to keep your tradition. Verse 13, invalidating the word of God by your tradition. Where did this tradition that keeps getting mentioned come from? The Jews relied heavily upon oral tradition found in the Talmud, which is commonly referred to as the oral law, even called the legal commentary on the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Eventually, the Talmud was written because no one person or group of people could remember it so that it could be passed on to the next generation. The Talmud consists of two parts, the Mishnah and the Gemara. The Mishnah is this codified systematic grouping of writings. There is actually 63 different tracts that were basically topics that they, they had categorized so that they could go look as it related to the Sabbath, for example. They could go look at the tract on the Sabbath and see what the law said about the Sabbath and then all of the oral tradition that had been brought in to bear. The Gemara is additional commentary on the Talmud. So basically you're talking about commentary on commentary. And by Jesus' day, obeying the oral tradition was as important for the Pharisees as obeying the Torah itself. And I'm going to share some examples of what that looked like practically in just, in just a bit. When did this oral tradition begin? Rabbis promoted the idea that Moses had received two laws on Mount Sinai, the written Torah and the oral Mishnah. James Edwards writes, The Mishnah was believed to preserve an unbroken chain of authorized tradition extending from Moses to the great synagogue of Jesus' day. The Mishnah refers to itself as, quote, a fence around the Torah. Fence being understood as a preservation of the integrity of the written law by elaborating every conceivable implication of it, end quote. So this is just mind-blowing. They, they, they ended up writing down. So remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. Well, what does that look like? And that just can't be, you know, or, um, it, you know, resting on the Sabbath. What does that look like, right? Well, so what do they do? They took their time. And this was, the, the rabbis were experts. At, this is all they wanted to do was try to find and think of different ways that the Sabbath could be broken. And I share all this to give you more color and background on what is meant by the tradition of the Pharisees and their ever-evolving system of legalism and works righteousness. And it led to some outrageous traditions. It was forbidden, and we covered this when we covered the Sabbath earlier in Mark. Those who are here for that will remember this. It was forbidden for them to walk more than 2,999 steps. And the people were actually forced to count on the Sabbath to make sure that they didn't go over. And when it was raining on the Sabbath and your, the, the roof of your house collapsed, it was forbidden for you to fix that hole in your roof, you just have to sit there in the rain or go somewhere else and walk out in the rain. Tradition required that people wash their hands before they eat. And depending on what food you had, you may have to wash your hands several times during the meal. 
Just craziness. And this is what Jesus is up against in this passage. Centuries of unbiblical oral tradition shackled to God's people. And the irony is that the Pharisees, in their attempt not to be defiled, all they did is they tried to adhere to this was just amplify and convict themselves of even deeper legalism. Especially by believing and leading others that this was God's way of salvation. How would Jesus respond to their traditions and their way of salvation? Matthew 23, 13 records the Lord's damning response. This is what he says. But woe to you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And all of God's people said, whoa. That's, that's, that's a scathing judgment right there. And this is why, you know, we, we, we see, don't we, throughout the Gospels, the Lord just responding so strongly against the scribes and the Pharisees. They were a roadblock to true faith. And the Lord had one favorite word that he used to describe them. It was just used in our verse. It starts with an H. Hypocrite. Hypocrites. That's what he called them. I did a word study on this word, mentioned 18 times in the New Testament, in the Gospels, every time used by the Lord Jesus Christ in connection with the scribes and the Pharisees, except one time. And if you're wondering what that one time was, I don't even remember, so you're going to have to go look for it. But the, the, the point is this. Every single time, this was the word that he identified with them the most. They, they, they were hypocrites. And he even uses it in verse 6 of our passage today. Why were they hypocrites? Because they self-righteously exalted their own traditions and standards. And there's a big difference between someone establishing traditions that flow out of principles from God's word that people can follow freely versus constructing tradition and standards on par or equal to God's words and then forcing people to follow. Do you grasp that? We see that? So important, right? And this is, this is the, 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 the distinction of, of really honoring God. The, the letter of the law says one thing, right? But the spirit of the law of, of the believer guides the believer and has them consider ways and how they can honor God in that process. But the Pharisees, oh, we can't leave it up to the people. We can't let them, we can't trust the Lord to decide and, and govern the people. We need to write it down. We need to come up. We're going to add, really, to the letter of the law. Turn with me to Luke 18, because we see this. This is by far... The, the most practical and incredible example in all of Scripture. Luke 18, starting in verse 9, and verse 9 actually sets the context for us. And Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves 
that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. That is a perfect description of the Pharisees. And that's why we have a Pharisee in our, in our story, in our parable. Verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So question, what is the answer to the dilemma? What can a person who is shackled to their own standards and living in bondage to legalism do? It's found within our sermon proposition. You might be a Pharisee if these defining actions characterize your life, showing your need for Christ and the gospel. L listen, this is, this is profound. Listen to what happened when Christ and the gospel pierced the Apostle Paul's heart of legalism in Galatians 1. I want you to turn there with me to Galatians chapter 1. You have to see it. Nobody was more zealous for Jewish tradition than the Apostle Paul, who even declared himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. And when it came to the law, a Pharisee. Listen to what he records, starting in Galatians 1.11. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And Paul, of course, is talking about his special conversion that took place on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, verse 13. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, had called me through his grace, through the grace of the gospel, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. The gospel of grace completely shattered Paul's concept and life of legalism. It was over. And you, can you imagine, just for a moment, just thinking about being entrenched in living out a, a, a faith where do, 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 and I got to go to church, and I got to go to Bible study, and I got to go to all, do all these things, and um, oh, I've never been on a mission trip. Surely the Lord can't be pleased with me. I need to go on a mission trip. Imagine Just like the Apostle Paul, that, that is just, listen, Paul was 
so entrenched, so, so, so deep. It's unbelievable. And he says goodbye to works righteousness. Goodbye, tradition of the Pharisees. Hello, Christ. Hello, imputed righteousness that will come to my account that I don't deserve and that I would never deserve and that I could never earn. Oh, how I was fooled. Oh, how I was corrupted to thinking that somehow I could make myself good enough and be holy enough to stand in his presence. And Paul even wrote of this righteousness. Since we're in Galatians, just turn over just to Philippians, just a few pages over to the right. Okay? Ephesians next, and then Philippians. Chapter 3. And we see how the gospel of grace immediately opened his eyes to the damning system of the Pharisees. Starting in, in verse 2. Listen to how Paul warns the, the Philippians about the Pharisees and the Judaizers. Listen, and starting in verse 2, and the, the, this is all describing a group of people here in verse 2. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. What is Paul saying? When it came to that pharisaical system and th th those traditions and, and all the things that the law, I, I did according to that system, I was blameless. And he climbed the religious ladder and he became more esteemed, right, by his contemporaries. But listen to what and how he concludes. Verse 7. But whatever those things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Listen to this. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Powerful. So, so powerful. Freedom from self-righteously judging the actions from others. Freedom from exalting my own traditions and standards. Where is it found? It's found in Christ. It's found in the gospel. Amen? 
right? And, and, and I praise God for being at a church where this has been featured for so long that it's been preached from this pulpit. There's nothing you can do to make yourself more worthy of God's presence. The gospel helps us to see that there is only one true judge that everyone will answer to, and it's not you or I. The gospel helps us see that there is one perfect standard required to stand before God, and that has been met by his son. Maybe you're someone here today that hasn't heard the gospel with clarity, and you think in your mind and, and according to the tradition that you were brought up in, that somehow you are fulfilling and attaining a righteous standard so that you can go to heaven someday when you die. Oh, that today would be the day that you would renounce it. Today would be the day that you would clearly understand from what God's word has taught that even our righteous deeds, right? Isaiah 64, 6, not talking about our sinful deeds, even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. That you would turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. And maybe you're someone here today that's falsely believed or been influenced even as a believer, a genuine converted believer that this has crept back in. There are times where you feel like, well, I'm, I'm doing all these things that, that's influencing your, your standing, your legal standing before God. It's an opportunity for us to repent and to reconsider the dangers of legalism as well. Are there any traditions or standards that you exalt in a self-righteous manner? Here's one for you. Are you willing to ask someone in your care group, are you willing to ask your spouse if there's any hypocrisy in your life? Are you willing to open yourself up to that question? What freed the Apostle Paul from the shackles of the Pharisaical tradition? And how can the message of the gospel, even as a believer today, continue to liberate us and to free us and to help us see the one righteous judge, help us to see the one perfect standard, to exalt him time and time again. And what a, a message for us to hear, even in preparation for second hour in our communion as we celebrate his work and his righteousness done on our behalf. Well, obviously, I only covered two points. And that's why in your title it said part one. We're going to cover the second two points next Sunday. And there's some encouraging stuff to, to dig out from those verses as well. Pray with me, please. Our Father in heaven, we want to acknowledge your greatness, the awesome reality of you providing everything for, for life and for godliness, including the greatest gift that could ever be provided, the righteousness that could come only through your Son. 
our Savior, our Lord, the Exalted One, the one that we had the joy of singing about just in our opening worship set that included so many rich lyrics that help us to see who we are, most significantly, who we aren't and who we can never be. We need Christ in every way. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the reality that the shackles have been removed. We have been freed from the mindset of works, righteousness, and enabled as new creations to resist it at every point. And yet, Father, if our hearts are sincere, there are still moments where we can elevate our standard, where we can not heed the counsel of Romans 12, 3, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but to think, to have sound judgment, to be sound in faith. So, Father, we do desire, even in a very real way, for our external testimonies to be impactful in this world, that we would have clean hands. But your word teaches that that has to flow out of a clean heart. And only you can clean that mess up. Only you, Father. Only you can convert the sinner's heart. Only you can impute righteousness. Only you can give a desire to pursue holiness and to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel call. We want to celebrate you and give you thanks for all that. We love you and praise you. In the precious name of Christ, we pray. Amen.